Hi, and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets podcast. My name is Graham Davis. I'm the digital editor of the Investors Chronicle. I'm standing in today for our editor, John Human, who's stricken at home. So hope you get well soon, John, if you're listening. Today, I've got the pleasure of being joined in the studio by Algie Hall, our tips editor. Hi, Algie. Hi, Graham. How are you? Yeah, very well, thanks. News editor, Bradley Gerrard. Hi there, Graham. And specialist writer, Emma Powell. Hi. And over in the control room, we've got Daniel Liberto. Hello, Graham. So we're going to start off with uh, a look at the uh, news this week. It's been, uh, well, the sun started shining. That was a bit of a relief. Um, but what else has been going on? The markets have been a little bit downcast, I would say, the first half of the week, Bradley. Well, yeah, the bookies are certainly downcast, mm. um, given Leicester City's win, which um, is probably the most sort of talked about news item, I think, of the whole week, actually. Um, so, the, yeah, they did actually finally make it to win the Premier League, which is um, what I think even supporters of other teams had begun to hope they would do in a way because it's yeah. such a fairy tale story um but yeah i spoke to a few of the gambling companies and um i mean william hill alone was going to pay out about three million quid ouch um which is quite a lot of cash and the chap at labricks who i spoke to was sort of saying that those types of long odds like five thousand to one which is where leicester city started the season are probably behind us now we're probably not going to see that type of thing again mm. and um what he was predicting is that while it's been a big loss for the bookies this season um, I think one estimate by Coral was up to 50 million for the whole gambling industry what's likely to happen next year is a lot of the other sort of potential outsider teams are going to see their fans backing them so Burnley and Watford were examples quoted to me so don't write into me I'm not calling Burnley and Watford outsiders anybody that's how they were pitched to me um, so those those teams might see um, you know might see a bit more support from their fans in terms of uh, backing them at the, at the bookies well, it, it, it's, it's an interesting um, case because there's definitely in behavioural finance there have been lots of studies on this normally around insurance kind of risk insurance you do find big spikes after a major one-off event and then they trail off so it could i mean it could be a road to future profits for for the bookies it's quite it's a very interesting angle for them so short-term hits could be a long-term gain next next season yeah exactly they're just thinking that the engagement from fans of football will just increase even more because you've got the the regulars so to speak of the mm. likes of the supporters of the manchester's chelsea arsenal who are always going to back their teams to win the title because they have so often in the past but now you're m- more likely to see a bit of sort of uh enthusiasm I suppose being shown at the bookies uh, of by supporters of um, less likely teams I noticed I, I did see that Burnley are actually 5,000 to 1 for next season are they? Yes, someone has offered those odds. Wow, well, they're very brave then. Maybe yeah. that means Burnley are going to win the title. Mm. But, um, yeah, and another f- little footballing story, less well covered, but um, Sportec, which is a very small gambling company, has been battling with HMRC for quite a long time now. I think it's the best part of about seven or eight years over VAT on its um, spot the ball competition, which um, some listeners may They're still remember. going. Well, no, it's not going anymore. Oh. Um, but there was a debate over whether it was a game of skill or chance. And apparently, if it's skill, that's fattable. But if it's chance, it's not. And um, yes, there's been a bit of a, a ding-dong between Sportec and the, the um, tax office. And who and, won? Well, Sportec has won. And it's a £97 million row. So that's actually, I think, more than half of Sportec's market cap. So the shares uh, rocketed 19% yesterday. Wow. Yeah. I missed that one. Yeah, it was later in the afternoon. But um, yeah, if there are any investors in that, they've done very well yesterday. Mm. And they'll be probably pleased to see the back of the reference to this VAT row with HMRC, which is in the every result statement for the past however many years. Oh, good news for them. Uh, what else has been going on in the news? 
I guess another thing that kind of sticks out, um, a couple of things in seven days kind of linked together really, is that the the rally that Gold has had this year, um, I was looking at it just before we came down to the podcast, and um, in January it was up 6%, February 9%, took a rest in March, um, and April up almost 5%. And I guess ordinarily when gold is doing very well it, it genuinely means that there's a bit of bearishness about mm. the um, the economy in general because if you think the economy is going to do well then largely speaking there'll be some inflation and if there's not then you want to kind of protect the um, the value of your assets and gold obviously does that and I guess that kind of ties in with um, some pro- projections for inflation in the eurozone which were reduced by the European Commission they're thinking inflation will only rise to 0.2% this year down from a previous forecast in, in only February of 0.5% so so that kind of suggests that maybe golds yes it's done very very well year to date but it could potentially do do better still if um you know inflation looks so meager and so poor yeah probably a lot of gold bugs will be happy about that yeah exactly I mean, it's, it's a contentious asset class a lot of people say you know it hasn't have doesn't have intrinsic value it's got no place in the portfolio but I mean, it's up like a fifth year to date. So one could argue that actually in, in the right conditions, it's not too bad. And so um, in, in looking at the Eurozone, is the, the Mario's bazooka is not working then, is it? Well, not yet. I mean, they've only recently said they're going to start buying a, like, up corporate bonds. I think that'll be particularly interesting. You have seen an impact of that statement in the market already with the likes of Unilever, I think it was, effectively issuing a bond at, at zero. So they were issuing it. I think the coupon was something like, minus 0.6 or something they were selling at a discount so your effective sort of return was effectively zilch (laughs) for the safety of lending money to Unilever so that's that's partly the impact I suppose because Unilever is a company that might well benefit from its bonds being bought up by the ECB they're fairly Hmm. stable company but yeah that's having an effect on the market already but well the bond market rather than the, the, the sort of global investment and confidence market, if you will. So, um, yeah, it's um, not having a big impact just yet, but it is quite a radical step. So I guess um, we'll just have to wait and see. Give it a bit of time. I noticed one of your other headlines here, Mortgage Madness. Yes. Is it back, really? I know. When I saw it, I mean, it, it is 100% mortgage in the sense that the person getting the mortgage out, they don't themselves have to have any deposit. But this product from Barclays um, does stipulate that a guarantor, effectively, a family member or a guardian, must put a ten percent deposit down into okay. this like particular account that's linked to this mortgage, and the money has to stay there for three years. They get interest on that money, so that there's a bit of incentive to do it. Um, so it's effectively a ninety percent loan to value product, but the actual person buying the house, they don't need they don't need a deposit that their parents or whoever, their uncle or whoever does. But then, I think what it was kind of getting at is that parents are increasingly having to fund deposits for their children Hmm. so rather than actually give the money to them and often never see it back um this product opens the way i suppose for parents who have the cash to just put it in an account they're not allowed access to it for three years or if they are there's maybe penalties or something but it's a different way then they get the money back at least so it's a different way of it's the same support but done in a different way so it'll be interesting to see how popular it is and if other mm. banks try and mimic it but at a headline rate it's 100 percent mortgage but um a lot of people are saying well actually it's not but it's a different way of doing things we'll see how it goes so we're still relying on the bank of mum and dad but just protecting them a bit yeah bank of mum and dad are going to get the cash back basically whereas mm. um the promise from the child that honestly i'll pay you back you know doesn't have a doesn't necessarily have the certainty that a, a bank account does and we also saw um some supermarket 
data out this week it looks a bit iffy out there yeah it does um kantar world's panel they um put their data out pretty regularly it's well followed um well followed numbers from them um there was a big spike you would expect at easter and um but that's the buoyancy of trading certainly hasn't continued so there was a 1.1 percent growth reported last month but actually um in the 24 weeks to april the sales only rose by 0.1%. So again, I suppose it comes back a little bit to what we were talking about, this whole um, story of inflation, um, uh, you know, and sort of just general growth and um, confidence, I suppose, of the consumer. I mean, those figures don't sort of point to a, that buoyant an yeah. economy, really. I mean, especially we'd see, the, you know, mortgages, this mortgage madness, 100% mortgages, the housing market is booming. Normally, that is accompanied by consumer spending boom, but mm. that just looks like it's drifting off now yeah it is and we had um there was an update from next i think wasn't mm. it, yesterday which is pretty uh pretty weak and um wasn't that sort of strong and yeah you're, you're starting to see the odd example i suppose of things on the high street struggling a little bit even if it's only sort of um temporarily like i mean costa coffee was owned by whitbread that had a bit of a, a softer winter um it's kind of bounced back a little bit now but there are those sort of increasing examples of a bit of softness in consumer facing companies mm. well we'll see if this lovely sunshine we're having makes a difference yeah i'm sure it will to ice cream sales and beer and cider yes <laughs> not speaking about my own preferences of course <laughs> and moving on to the news section which of which you seem to have written quite a lot well, I thought um, I'd in. <laughs> the the shareholder spring uh, situation is is just not going away is it no, it's quite interesting. It's um, uh, the, the FT reported earlier this week that the um, the oil fund is known. It's the government pension fund of Norway. It's um, the biggest sovereign wealth fund there is. They have historically had a policy of not really getting involved in discussions over executive pay because they're such a large fund. They invest globally. So if you start having an argument about executive pay... It's going to have to be relative to the country in which you're talking about. Um, because they invest so... They've, they've got an investment in almost every stock, I think, in the world. So it would just be too onerous in their view. But um, they've decided to actually revamp that view and they are going to start voting um, and expressing their opinion formally on issues of governance and executive pay. So that's going to be quite a big line in the sand, I think, for this um, this shareholder spring that we're kind of seeing. And you are seeing more and more asset managers be a lot more vocal and transparent about their voting records as well. And I cite in the story, I think, people like um, L&G, um, or Legal and General Investment Management, in fact, and Royal London, are increasingly talking about how they voted or are going to vote even at AGMs. Um, Fidelity are quite active on this as well. So you're starting to see a bit more... They may have always voted like this, they may have always been quite active houses, mm. but they haven't always really shared that information. But yep. now they're very, very open with it. This is a great thing. Yeah, it is, I suppose. And you've got the decline of things like Crest accounts and stuff. So arguably, you could say that, um, you know, individual um, private shareholders of the likes who are, um, you know, reading the Investors Chronicle may be well pleased to see that some of the bigger institutional shareholders are being more active. Because um, these are issues that, that do, you know, they, they do rile the private investor. You know, chief executives getting paid £20 million a year plus for what effectively can be very poor performance yeah exactly I mean, sometimes it can be a bit sort of a, a bit of a dog whistle i suppose a big mm. figure it gets put in the headline and you know without the context of why that's been deserved or not deserved sort of thing but i think 
yeah, the, some chief executives are getting some very, very big pay packets. And obviously, BP was a very interesting example recently. I mean, there's there's very little Bob Dudley can do about the price of oil. Um, mm. And, you know, BP was certainly very um, sort of strong in saying that they'd set him targets and he'd achieved those. And you could argue, I suppose, had he not done what he has done, the results of BP would be even worse. Yeah. Um, so it's always a tough one, especially in the quantity sector at the moment. But, I mean, Rakit Benkais is a great example. I mean, Rakesh Kapoor, the chief executive there, is in line for about a £23 million payout for 2015. That, uh, you know, there was a bit of uprising against that. And mm. it's an advisory vote, though. It's not a binding one. So people can just show they're a bit angry. Yeah. Um, and that's actually going on as we speak. I, I checked um, the RNS before we came down. There wasn't a result yet. Okay. But yeah, it's um, we are seeing it more and more. Aviva um, had a very, very small protest vote against its director's remuneration, less than 3%. Standard Chartered, 9.5% in those two AGMs were yesterday. 9.5% doesn't sound like a big number, but actually I reckon if you looked back, that probably is quite a big number. Compared to previous years, yeah. yeah. Well, it'd be interesting to see, I mean, I know that there are a lot of them are advisory mm. votes, but then following year, BP is binding next year. So yeah. it'd be interesting to see if this new sort of attitude from big institutional shareholders stays with us or whether this is just a shot across the bows yeah exactly it will be it'd be very interesting to see when these votes become binding whether we're seeing a similar amount of um yeah agitation on behalf of shareholders and on the flip side i suppose whether they need to maybe companies will tweak these policies apparently so or becoming more um controversial uh, yeah we'll have to see mm, well that, that that will be the i suppose that will be the interesting outcome of this is whether it changes the behavior of the companies absolutely really okay i was going to um move on to to emma at this point because uh uk banks have been in the uh in the news over the past week or so you've covered the quarterly results yeah. what's the uh, you know what's the feeling well, um, I mean, the stuff that it was Q1s and I mean, the stuff that would have been grabbing all the headlines is, you know, the fall in profits. Um, if you look at it on a year on year basis. They're pretty ugly, some of these figures. They are. I mean, things like Bradley mentioned Standard Chartered. Um, Standard Chartered, uh, their profits were down by 59% during the first quarter year on year. That's not actually surprising, though, if you actually have followed these stories because all across the sector, you know, they've had particularly Standard Chartered and HSBC, they've got big exposures to the commodity sectors, they've had to take big um, impairments on those loans, you know, loans where people have defaulted across, you know, banks like Barclays and Lloyds, PPI, selling mm-hmm. PPI provisions, things like that. They're also kind of struggling in terms of their income, they're undergoing these massive restructures. So the fact that they're Profits are down substantially isn't too surprising, I don't think. Actually, if you look at it on a basis of um, compare quarter, final quarter of last year and the first quarter this year, they have actually, you know, the the decline is less. So they have actually um, improved. But obviously, you know, this is a long term kind of recovery in the UK banking sector Hmm. um, because there's just so many legacy issues there. Yeah. So cutting through the headline figures... It's not quite as awful as it appears at first view. No, I don't think. I mean, in terms of the way we've been looking at it, I think there's a split in terms of Lloyd's and maybe Barclays compared to banks like HSBC and Mm. Standard Chartered. Standard Chartered particularly, um, some of those kind of impairments they're still having to take because of their commodities exposure. And they're still, I mean, their new chief executive still, he's fresh through the door really, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the thing is, 
I mean, we've we've got Standard Chartered on a sale still, mm. whereas, you know, you can look at banks like Barclays where, you know, admittedly their profits were down by around a quarter. But the reason for that is because they're undergoing this big restructure where they're they're trying to run off their non-core assets and they've just stripped it back to core assets. But obviously that's dragging on the profits and the returns mm. of the core business is making. But I think you have to look at it in terms of kind of the long term strategy and how well they're doing with that, which in the case of Lloyd's and Barclays, that's kept us positive on those stocks. So yeah, I'd say, you know, that it wasn't all bad news. There were some signs that, you know, the strategies are still on course for some of those banks. I mean, it is amazing, though, when we're eight years after the financial crisis, and these guys are still talking about huge cost savings yeah, well, now there was such huge there was such huge amounts of money involved it's all these all these provisions and the impairments and obviously the commodities rut hasn't helped mm. but yeah this is really long-running stuff and ppi in particular i mean obviously the fca has now set a deadline on claims which hopefully will draw a line under it but yeah i mean this is why also they're all trying to kind of simplify their businesses down. And I do think Barclays, I mean, we, we, you said Barclays is, uh, we've kept it on a buy. Algie had a little smile there, could see our tips editor. We're keeping it on a buy. Do we think that the uh, the strategy is right now? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's very long term, stripping down to non, to, to just sorry, just to kind of UK and US kind of corporations that, you know, they're selling off their stake in Barclays Africa. That that actually looks. I think it was nine point nine percent return on equity. They sold a uh, chunk of that core. just today, haven't they? They they have actually. Yeah, sorry, yeah, twelve point two percent to a South African um, pension fund. So yeah, they they made about six hundred million on that. My view would be that the strategy seems on course. Mm-hmm. Of course, Lloyd's is our kind of big buy for the year. That's one of our tips yeah. That's of the right. Year. Yeah, on, on on the basis that the income's coming back, and so far, or the dividend, and so far that has been the case this year although people are still slightly unsure yeah with with lloyd's obviously the big kind of it was right to keep the faith moment i guess that we had was was when they tripled that i think they more than tripled it because they paid out a special dividend too at the time of the um 2015 results so obviously i think a big basis of our buy tip was very much part of the recovery will be that they will start paying out this these dividends and increasing the dividend which which happened so yeah, I'd say my personal favourite in the sector is uh, Lloyd's, then probably followed by Barclays, I would say. I also wanted to, while you're here, ask you about um, Standard Life, which this week announced quite an interesting acquisition. Yeah, um, I think this had been apparently kind of trailed for quite a long time. Or Bradley's been waiting for this for years. It was one of those rumours <laughs> that Axel was going to sell Elevate that I just got almost got so bored of, I stopped paying any attention to it. I thought it would never happen. Spent five years covering the asset management industry, and then uh, nine months later, after I've left it, it happens. Yeah, so this is Elevate. This is Axel's kind of rap platform. Standard life, obviously, kind of moving away from... I mean, they're, they're a life insurer, but they're actually trying to move away um, from the kind of traditional life insurance um, products. Obviously, we have the decline of annuities, things like that. So they're going more into kind of fee-based kind of platforms like, you know, obviously their rap platform and also asset management, standard life investments has become a much bigger part of the business. So, yeah, this was a positive move for them. It's going to 
almost double their customer numbers for their um, their platform business. So, yeah, I mean, it was quite out of the blue, actually, for me. I, I didn't almost realise that it had been trailed for quite so many <laughs> years, but... Well, nobody knew who the buyer was going to be. That it wasn't trade. It was just it was just always said that Axel would sell bits of its UK business, which I guess kind of makes sense. But um, yeah, as Emma says, this move by Standard Life is interesting. The assets it's bought, it's almost like ten billion of assets. Isn't yeah, it? nine point eight billion. Yeah, so it's a fairly sizable purchase, and um, it will potentially, potentially, I suppose, reduce the kind of choice in the rap platform market that financial advisors have. Although I'm sure Standard Life would say that's not the case. But it looks like it really establishes their position in that market as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they've got a strong one anyway, but the Standard Life wrap is very popular. They've had very good, just last year, they had very good inflows into it, so... Okay, good stuff. And we keep Standard Life on a buy as well. Yeah, we do. That's another tip. Excellent. Now, um, talking of dividends, as we were a few moments ago, Algy, I'm going to bring you in at this point to talk about your feature, Easy Income, which yes. is based on a stock screen. Yeah, it's just it's, it's one of my regular stock screens, and um, I suppose the interesting thing is that it's five years old, or... That's what our editor, convalescing as he is at the moment, um, thought. Uh, and, and I mean, this is a very simple kind of rule-based way to pick income stock. I, looking at the performance of it, Alge, it deserves to be on the front cover. You've With this screen, you've beaten every equity income fund manager out there. Yeah, well, I'd, 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 say, I'd say the screen's beaten every... <laughs> Come on, Alge. ...income manager out there. But um, yeah, no, it has. It's... Um, yeah, no, so the yeah, the next best equity income fund manager based on Morning Morningstar tracks thirty six who have records over the time period. So um Ch- Chelverton UK income apparently has produced a total return with income reinvested of ninety nine point seven percent. And your screen and did? It's uh well hundred and twenty five percent, but if you factor in an annual charge, which you'd have to pay for dealing and Mm-hmm. Uh, stamp duty and all that. Um, so uh, annual charge of one and a half percent. I put in. You, you, uh, it's done one hundred nine percent. Still smashed is, it. Which yeah, smashed it. Mm. Um, and the FTSE all share thirty three point nine percent. I suppose what what I find so interesting about this is, um, I think I said in the piece that I would describe the criteria used by the screen as neither very imag- imaginative. Or innovative, or anything special. Really, these are the things which we, you know, every income investor should probably just be, you know, bearing in mind. And um, but a kind of clear focus on them from this screen has produced very strong outperformance of the market. So it's and quite it, simple. Yeah, they're, they're things like you know, for you know, I call it the low risk, um, high yield screen. So it looks for a low beta. So beta being how um sensitive uh, share has historically been to wider market movements and it looks for a, a high yield being three and a half percent you know rather arbitrary level because um that does look high at the moment but um maybe not always and then the things just like you know earnings have been growing earnings are forecast to grow dividend covers all right one and a half times so uh yeah no so it's um yeah so it's all it's all fairly um you know straight straightforward stuff but um also, I, I was talking about behavioural finance earlier in, in relation to um, the, the bookies and mm. how um, they should actually benefit from this big loss of, um, from Leicester because people will be wasting their money on like these <laughs> long shot bets which won't pay off and the bookies will profit. Um, well, there, there's, there's some behavioural finance which I mentioned in this piece as well. I'm trying, I'm trying to get all clever, clever this week. Yep, go on. Watching uh, <laughs> <laughs> academics, but... Um, it's uh, they, there's a there's a kind of strain. There's a guy called um, 
Paul Meal, I, I think that's how, how I pronounce his name, who um, way back in the 50s um, looked at all these studies into how experts had performed against very simple equations, which used some of the data that the experts would be basing their opinions on. And he found um, in almost every every one of the cases he looked at, there's the quality of prediction was far better just by looking at the very basic data and, uh, and applying a very basic formula. And um, uh, something like that's very interesting when you see some, you know, a screen like this outperforming. I've got, no, you know, I've got no idea whether, you know, in the next five years or do as well. But um, so all these highly paid fund managers are basically just muddying the water. Well, that would be the suggestion. I mean, um, you know, it's, it's, it, who 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 knows who knows really? But um, there's definitely an argument uh, which you know behavioural finance people are interested in, which is yeah, by you know by effectively overthinking, taking in too much information then it's easy to lose track of the kind of those core kind of stock fundamentals, which are actual point, point you in the, the right direction, especially when you're taking a more diverse view. So I think the average um, holding in one of these, um, in the five portfolios, the screens um, pulled together over the last five years is 12.4 shares. So, um, you know, and, and, you know, people talk about 10 shares being enough to get a, um, you know, diversity. So, um, you know, so, so, the you know the screen's giving diversity and it's um help it helping it itself escape from the failures which are inevitably going to be in there. So that's sufficiently diverse, ten or twelve stocks, you think? Well, that's what you know. That's what some people say. Who am I to argue? <laughs> like these guys over the river who've got fifty, sixty, hundred shares in. A well, yeah. I mean, the, the the trouble is if you have too much diversity, or you know, in in theory, what what you're doing rather than um protecting yourself from risk you're you're kind of diluting where you where you have real insight so um you're you're um you're kind of uh diluting your advantage rather than diluting the risk you want you want some risk in a portfolio of stocks because with risk comes reward and you know Mm -hmm. that's um that's what everyone's going for really so this year, and just from looking at it, it looks like this year you, you, the screen returned more results than it had in pre- the last couple of years. Have been a bit fallow in terms yeah. of the actual results. So you had, you had a reasonable choice this year as well. Yeah, no, there are ten shares. So the last two years, I've had to run two screens, and one, one, the the kind of the screen where I ask every, every uh, the, the the stocks that pass all the tests have only come back with four shares. In 2014, I think, in three shares in 2015. So I had mm. to run a relaxed version to get a decent um, selection of shares. But because the market hasn't been going so well, because maybe because there's so many more doubts about the sustainability of dividends, which um, Bradley actually touches on in um, another piece he's written in the yeah. um, in the news section. There, there just seems to be a lot. Yeah, there are ten stocks which qualify. And We're I, not going to name names, though. We won't name names. Buy the magazine to find them. Oh out. yes, oh yes. But, but I, 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 I took a closer look at three of them. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of, you know, one one which was you know very big yield, one which had a kind of you know a medium yield in terms of the selection, one which had a lower yield, and all, all of them showed you know some form of promise. You know, varying degrees of risk. Some you know, and, and also this is a low risk screen. I, I you know. It's billed as there's some cyclicality in terms of its choices as well, in, yep. in terms of the, those businesses. Now, the idea with this screen and the, and the performance figures you've quoted is from re, for every 12 months you run, run the screen again, yeah, and, and then yeah, buy those from, yeah. new shares. You don't yeah. hold them for five years, no, you don't. But if, if you did hold um, each one of the portfolios, uh, you would have they would outperform from the date the screen was run. To now, um, all of them have outperformed the market in um, 
to to greater or lesser extents uh since you know since the original portfolio was run but it's um it's not a screen that's really designed to to look to the long term okay good stuff so basically it's simple easy to understand criteria and stick to your guns on that and uh thus far the past five years have been a yeah a storming success I think that's all for today. Um, readers who are or listeners who are uh, fans of our portfolios have a, a huge selection in this week's magazine. We've got Simon Thompson um, updating on his bargain shares portfolio. John Barron's ever popular investment trust portfolio. We've got the reader portfolio as normal. James Norrington has um, run his value momentum momentum portfolio screen, which has beaten the FTSE 350 fourfold since November. And uh, Another feature we have this week is the first part of Philip Ryland's Understanding Investment in 50 Objects. Uh, a very f- interesting um, feature, this one, and the first three objects Philip has written about in some depth this week. Um, for fans of podcasts, we've also had a couple of special podcasts this week, one on uh, by Alex Newman on Royal Dutch Shell and the third part of Kate Bearley's ETFs podcast special. So uh, visit the podcast hub to listen to those. And thank you very much for everybody for your participation today. And thanks for listening.